Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Thank you for, Koki, for reading that. Welcome to Capital Church this morning. Come on, what a great, great group of people. I hope you sat by who you want to sit by. It's too late now. You're locked in for a minute. Hey, but welcome. I hope you've enjoyed the last few, few Sundays. Uh, we've been in somewhat of a series of looking at some of the distinctions of the, earth, of the early church and uh, from Pastor Tracy's message on tabling. Hopefully there was some application with that for you over the last couple of weeks and then uh, the brilliance of our lead pastor, Pastor Christ, last Sunday. Um, trying to follow him. I followed him two weeks ago in a wedding toast and he quoted Kierkegaard in his wedding toast. And I told a story about a one will, so a <laughs> little bit different. Uh, but are you so grateful that we have some just amazing pastors that, number one, love, love God with all their heart, with all their soul and their mind and strength, as just read. Um, but they also love, they love scripture. They love the word. And so we are in, come on, a, a, a great, great community of people, of, come on, personality, friendships, uh, old and new, and uh, just on the horizon. And so count it a blessing that you're a part of a church like this. I do every day. In the moments that I get a little bit insecure or I get somewhat critical uh, in my opinions of others and things, I just have to quickly remind myself uh, what blessing God's brought into, into my life, into our life. Amen? I do believe, Pastor Ken, I, I really believe that we are, we are in a, a transition. Come on, 40 plus years of being a anchor, a pillar of faith in a community that's not shrinking, but growing and expanding. And not just here, but people from, that are raised in this valley are, have been raised up. There's inventions, there's new communities, there's innovations uh, that have been influencing the world. And it'd be crazy to think that we didn't have a part in that. And so you got to look at this as this community and amazing churches like this all across the valley that are faith-based and that are centered on Jesus uh, are really doing a remarkable thing as they just continue to let God lead them. And as the people are willing just to obey, wherever God goes, we're going. And so that is hopefully, that's my, my prayer. That's my heart today. And I hope that's your heart today is that you're here because uh, not just for a celebration, and it is, but you, you desperately uh, want to see God continue to move in, in your life and your family and the influence around you. Amen? Well, Koki read these these two stories, one out of the Gospel of John and one out of the Gospel of Luke. And as I was preparing for today, Pastor Chris asked me to, to share on some of the early church distinctives when it comes to taking care of, of the poor. The problem that I find is that when you lead with that, a lot of people just kind of just give you an eye roll in their hearts um, or they assume that 
yeah, we know who the poor is, and I'm sure some people are taking care of them. And there's others that are, they're, they're advocates for the poor, and that's what they do, live, sleep, and all their energy goes towards that. But I just want to expand a little bit, uh, probably Scripture's definition of, of what the poor can look like. Yes, is it, is it people who are disfranchised? Yes. Is it the homeless? Yes. Is it people who have nothing? Absolutely. But you can also be monetarily rich and be spiritually poor. And so there is a greater, I think, understanding of who the poor are are that God has called the church to reach and be a ministry of hope to. Amen? And so as I, as I was reading through the Gospel of John, and you come to chapter 8, it's, you see a unique story. And I use these stories because I, I really feel like it paints a pretty solid picture of the cultural mood of our day. Story number one is all about uh, people wanting to um, investigate and pry and bring the sin of an individual to the, the public eye. There's a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, which is, is not a good deal. Um, but the fact that she's caught in the act of adultery means that there's eyewitnesses. And so I've always been curious, you know, why aren't we talking to those guys? Uh, what was the deal to where they were able to catch her in the act? And not only that, she wasn't in adultery by herself. So where's the other character uh, that was also a part of this problem as well? What we see is we see a woman that is taken from that place and brought into the public in front of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the crowd that had already gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. So essentially what's happening is you see that Jesus is in the midst of a really solid teaching lesson and he's interrupted by these men who are um, dragging this woman in public to face the accusers saying this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that she's to be killed by stoning what do you say? Putting Jesus to the test. I love Jesus' move. He just bends down and writes something in, in the dirts. What he wrote, we don't know. Um, it's not so much what he wrote. It's what he said that began to really uh, shake up the crowd a little bit. But the reason why I use that passage is because I feel like culturally that's where we're at right now, our mood. We are obsessed about unearthing the private affairs and the sin and the, the patterns of uh, destruction in the life of other people and then bringing them to the public's eye, somehow we get a high off that. Somehow that becomes our energy sucker. That's where everything goes. We scroll, we scroll, trying to find the latest and greatest and most juicy gossip. We have movies and individuals, and we have companies that are profiting off of shaming and humiliating people based on what's going on in their, their private life. Almost as a way to say, ah, I told you, I told you, as a way that it justifies maybe the, the individual. You see that this has happened to her. And you, you, we can read the story quickly, and that could be a danger sometime. And so uh, as, as I was reading, I was thinking, man, yes, she was wrong, but man, a wrong and a wrong don't, don't make a right. And so what we see happen is this crowd brings her. She's humiliated. She's full of shame. She had no time to get home and get ready and to face the crowd. She's forcefully brought there. She confronts a crowd who is very curious, like our culture today, seeing, okay, what's going to happen? And you see this beautiful response. Jesus echoes Exodus 34, and he meets the woman in her guilt with compassion and grace and mercy. And he bends down and he writes something in the sand. 
And then he says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. See, I think what happens in our day, in our desire to expose people of their, their issues and their problems as we desire to expose them to the public, in that moment, in that act, we forget that we too have a long laundry list of shortcomings and even sin in our own lives. But somehow we forget about that when the finger's pointing at other people. Jesus does something. As he speaks those words, the crowd begins to disperse from, it says, the oldest to the youngest. He stands up. He is in front of the woman, as John reads, and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? Does anyone condemn you? And she said, no, Lord, no one. He says, neither do I go and sin no more. What does Jesus do in that moment? He's meeting her with compassion, and he says, now that you've encountered me, go and live this brand new life. Doesn't mean go and be perfect. He says, go and sin no more. Live this new life that I'm giving you. Why? Because you probably could have been killed for this act, but I'm here to give you new life. Now, we don't want to speculate on scripture. The speculation is never good, but just for fun, just for 10 seconds, let me speculate. I think what he wrote in the sand, this is what goes on in my head, and we'll find out later on. Maybe we won't. But what I think he wrote down, because he's just so Jesus, right? I think he wrote down, and I'm sure the accusers pushed out the teaching audience. I think the teaching audience got moved to the back, and it was the accusers because they interrupted this, this, wonderful, um, this wonderful Sunday experience with Jesus. And I think they're up front row. And I think Jesus began to write names in the dirt. I really, I mean, I think he'd write, like, names that some of these guys have maybe been messing around with. Yeah. Once again, speculation, speculation time is over. However, just whatever he wrote, it has less to do with what he wrote and more to do with what he said. He brings to the whole crowd a conviction to examine their own hearts, which we have to do every single day of every single moment of our life is examine our hearts so that we're looking at the world with the eyes and the compassion that comes through through Jesus. The other story is also a picture of our world. So we're a world, we're in a world and a culture mood that's obsessed about exposing other people of their sins and their flaws. And our, uh, just all of news is that you, you can't wake up on any given day uh, shaking. You used to be able to shake your head. Like, I can't believe this. Now we wake up, you're like, oh my goodness, just another thing another exposure, another story that feels like it's like just a dumpster fire and people plotting and praising over it. Then you have John, excuse me, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is a lawyer speaks to, to Jesus and he's asking about, okay, what it is to, to gain salvation. It could be that he's trying to figure that on his own, in his own terms, forgetting and not even having a clue about the means of grace, that you can't earn your way into a relationship with Christ. Uh, but Jesus points to the fact that it has a lot to do with, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and, and, and Leviticus 19, which he puts the Shema together, which is the, the great commandment summed up in this, that you love the Lord to God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so he's doing well there. They get past the love section, and then he's asked, okay, well then, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, instead of ask, answering the question directly, what does he do? He launches into a beautiful story about a man who was, was taken down by robbers. He was beaten up. He was left half dead on the side of a road. And it just so happened that a priest came along and saw the man 
man half dead. Now we don't know. We can assume that this man was probably a Jew. And so a priest come, comes along, uh, his, his, both a priest and a Levite. So his own people come along and it tells us that the priest crosses to the other side of the road and continues on his way. The same is true for the Levite. The Levite sees the man half dead, comes to the other side of the road and goes on his way. It probably had to do with the fact that if the priest came and came up to the man and the man was either half dead or dead, for him to figure out if the man was half dead or dead, he would have to touch the man. And if the man ended up being fully dead, then ceremonially that priest would be unclean. And who has time for that, right? So like instead of like even getting close to that, we cross to the other side so we don't have to let that affect our day and we can continue on with ministry and with the goals that we've set for our day. The Levite shares the same story. And then... Jesus uses, and this is parable, Jesus uses the example of a Samaritan. A Samaritan comes along. He would be the least thought of person in this scenario by the audience of the day because Samaritans and Jews, they had this feud. There was a friction between them. But it's a Samaritan who sees maybe an enemy obviously a stranger, half dead on the side of the road, and he doesn't cross to the other side, but he gets off of his his animal. He takes care of the man immediately by giving him oil and wine. Puts, he puts wine on his wounds for disinfecting. He then places his crazy. He places the man on his animal, and they proceed from Jerusalem to Jericho as they go down this, this massive, treacherous road. Uh, people would say you studied it. It'd be 17 plus miles. It's very steep, 3,000 feet descent, something like that. So it's, it's, it's tricky. But I love how the Samaritan's walking and the stranger, the man who's half dead, is on his animal. He takes him to an inn. He pays the innkeeper money to provide care uh, to where he could regain his health. It wasn't a quick work, but it was a long work. And he even says that if the money runs out, whatever you pay out of pocket, when I come, when I return, I'll pay you back. It's pretty clear that Jesus is the Samaritan in this story. That in, in the point is this, we live in a culture that's quick to expose people and quick to walk by people or quick to expose the burden, the pain, and the, the guilt and the sin in other people, but really slow to be a help or an aid to a stranger, definitely not an enemy of, of their lives. We're in a transition, 40 years as a church. I just, and Pastor Chris asks this question all the time, what type of church are we going to be? I want to be a type of church that sees people the way Jesus sees people. Jesus saw the woman differently in John. Jesus saw the man differently in his story to this, this young man. And I, I love when the, the young man asks, okay, what is my neighbor? Jesus responds kind of with a, a better question. The picture is this. The whole story is summed up to this. Who are you a neighbor to? So it's not about just who lives next door. It's who are you deciding to open your heart and your life and your world and the story of the gospel and the story of hope and the story of love to both friends, family, but strangers and even enemies, people that you wouldn't even consider sitting at the table with. Would, would you be a part of God's story to sit at the table with people uh, who might look completely different than you, who might live and act completely different than you? This is the church type of church that God's calling us to be. When you look in the, the new not the New Testament, when you look at early church history, 
We see that the early church philanthropy was deeply informed by this theological concept of the Imagio Dei, that humans were created in the image of God. The nature of Yahweh was not represented in a pictorial representation because how could you paint a picture of God? What, what would he look like? But it was represented by the human race. Humans alone could be called the image of Yahweh because in their nature and being, they reflected what? They reflected their creator. This is for, this one's for Michael. Um, when Michael speaks, Michael, this is for you. You use props, and so I'm gonna use props today. Okay, yes, just quickly set that up. We'll give you just a little picture that you can take home. Uh, but I want you to consider what, what, the image of God means, because what the image of God means when you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man our image and after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So, the understanding for the early church is that every human life was a reflection of the image and the nature and the character of God. What a beautiful picture of flowers. Have you, have you seen this? And I'm not, this, I'm not supportive of this, so please don't cut this message out. I'm not in whatever it is, the echo terrorists that are power hungry and want to destroy beautiful art. But you, you saw like the Van Gogh, his, his famous sunflower painting, and how terrorists, they, echo terrorists, they glued themselves to the wall, and then they took tomato soup and poured soup on it. I mean, they, they're somewhat making, uh, they're not making the point I want to make, but they are definitely making a point. So I'll do this. Oh, yeah. That says sin. It smells good. All right, well, I'm, I'm not much of a tagger. We'll let that be for a minute. But here's the thing about a, a Van Gogh painting that is graffitied. Guess what? It's still a Van Gogh painting. Yes. Anyone have ever heard the, the Mona Lisa? Yeah. Right? Da, da Vinci. She's been graffitied. The, the picture's been graffitied probably three or four times. And even though they graffiti the Mona Lisa, she still represents someone. So when you think about the Mona Lisa, you don't think about the, your neighbor next door. You don't think about some random coworker. You automatically think about the artist, correct? This is the early church concept of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and it's very, very accurate. I think the problem is when we look at the outward appearance of man, we see the graffiti, but hear me, we forget to see and recognize a little bit deeper because we're just so much in a hurry because we're all so very important that we don't take the time to actually consider who we're talking to. Not just in their name, but their person, their story, how they've been made in the image and likeness of God. But unfortunately, sin is always the great graffitier of life. And it's come, and it's, it has. It's graffiti. Not just, come on, a few of us. 
all of us have been marked in some way, some form, some, some fashion by sin and corruption. And God forbid we be a church that we see through a wrong lens and looking at people who are broken and hurting and who even make mistakes like the woman who was caught. What we have to be is we have to be a church that sees, yes, we recognize that there is destruction on you and in you, but we also recognize that we're part of a bigger story. We recognize that our purpose goes beyond just abuse that we might face and incur. We recognize that our life has meaning. It has value, not just by some individual, but by God himself, the creator of heaven and earth. So the early church understood this. To abuse someone would be an abuse to the almighty. To discard someone would be to make a slight towards the creator who is it was God. So what would they do? Instead of running away from the mess, they would run to the mess because they know in the mess are people who represent the very image and the nature of God himself. Image bearers. This is what it means to be a Maggio Dei, in the image and likeness of God. Amen. Now, do we physically look like God? No, because we don't know what he looks like. It's the, the point is, we reflect in the words of the brilliant Dr. Gary Bashirs, he, he describes the Imagio Dei as this, the amazing ability. So this is for all of us. I want you to hear this. Every day of our life, we get to live this. The amazing ability and awesome responsibility to make visible the invisible attributes of the creator and the redeemer. So the belief was that the image of God in humans had implications for the protection and care of all of human life. This includes the unity of the soul and the body. So in other words, to destroy or to harm or to hurt or to ignore someone who was hurting uh, would be a slight against the entire, it was to destroy the human personality. And as such, it would be a snub to the dignity of God whose image and worth all humans bear. So it's, that's what the early church thought when it came to looking at people and looking at the world around them, image bearers. But not only that, Jesus saw this woman in John as an image bearer. He saw the story that he gave to this young man in Luke as an image bearer. But it was also motivated by something that Pastor Ken mentioned is agape. It's this love that's unlimited. It's a love that is it's greater than philanthropy of uh, the, the, the early church. It's, it's greater than that. It, it, it's a love that bears all. It, it, it carries much. It endures much. It encounters persecution, encounters suffering, not just for the individual, but for the sake of other people. Uh, and we see that um, it's a love that's motivated Jesus, uh, the, the, the entire uh, triune God, to uh, send his son into the world that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is agape. God is love. So personal concern, let me tell you this, for the poor and needy was an important theme in the early church. Charity is represented as an outgrowth of agape or of love, which is rooted in the nature of God. So the reason why they were charitable, it wasn't so that they could sleep better at nights, kind of just... Um, kind of taking care of like their own personal conviction, but it was a motivator based on the love that God had toward, toward them. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. 
by this, all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if we're to be a church that's making a difference in the world, the world needs to see a church that loves each other. And that's both in the church, because this isn't, those who are poor in spirit and who are bankrupt spiritually just aren't on the outside. We got a lot on the inside today that you, you know where you're at. You know where your heart is. You know what you've been carrying. You know what you've been running from. And I want to tell you today that the God that you serve that is present is a God that is not bringing you in front of the crowd and pointing out your sin and considering whether he should kill you or not. But it's a God who meets you as he dismisses the crowd and says, I know what you're going through. I, I got you. And I want you to know that compassion and grace are on the forefront. But I'm also demanding a new way of living out of you. That because of you experienced this grace and because you've experienced this unending love, um, I'm demanding you live completely different now in a new way of being, being human. This is what motivated the early church, both seeing people properly as image bearers and the love that God has towards us is expressed in our charity and our generosity and our care for other people, both the easy cases but also the extremely difficult cases. cases. Compassion was regarded as a manifestation of Christian love and an essential element of the Christian obligation, not just to some people, but to all people. It's where Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. 1 John 3 17, but if any of you has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He asked. We see the early Christian uh, insisted that the love of God required a spontaneous manifestation of personal charity towards one's brothers and sisters. So one could not claim to love God without loving his brothers. First John 4, 20, 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, says he's a liar. For who he does not love, for he who does not love the brother whom he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so the question is in my study this week, the Holy Spirit's like, how you, how you doing with that, Shane? And so I had to answer that. Now I'm bringing it to you. How are we doing with this church? How well are we exemplifying uh, looking at people, not the easy ones, but the difficult ones with the lens of Imagio Dei, seeing them in the image of God? How well are we motivated by a love that compels us not to run to the other side and run away, but to get off of uh, our steed? We're not on a steed. Uh, to, to, get off our, to get out of our vehicle, uh, to pause our busy schedule to inconvenience ourselves so that we can convenience someone else with the hope and the help that only comes from Christians who care and are concerned and are pointing people to Jesus. 
the early Christian church was built different. They were considered to be a social project. They also were considered to be a contrast community. Come on, church. We're called to be a social project and a contrast community. In this day, in the early church, there were no social programs for the poor. So guess what? The church stepped up. I wonder that if over the centuries, we've slowly just given up our right and our place as being the church. Now, get me. I love programs. I love healthy, good legislation. But legislation by itself won't do what the church can do when it's really healthy. And I do believe this. I I feel like we are moving into... Into I can't speak for the whole ecumenical church, but I can speak, come on, for this local house. 40 years being present in this valley, we're no longer moving back to the elementary principles of faith. But God's calling us to be mature and to be strong and to dream more and to step out more and to believe God for more and to be inconvenienced more and to reach more and to care more and to love more and to pray more. Programs won't save us. I'll tell you this right now. We could have another program, and we could present it today, and I still would put money on the fact that only the faithful 10%ers would show up. And this is where I'm supposed to talk about not our church, but other churches. But no, talking about this house. We'll call for a prayer meeting, and 10% on a good night would show up. We'll, we'll call for people to pause what they're doing because it's all very important to care for a major concern that maybe we, we present. And still, there is a small percentage. I don't have to speak about that. I could quickly run over that, but then we'll be speaking about it in months and years ahead. I really think that this is a call as a church that we move from just being the faithful 10 percenters to a majority. Let, Let's be a faithful 80% and giving 20% room for people who just are just checking things out. Like, just change the numbers there, the ratio of things, and, and what could a church on mission, on fire, convicted by the Holy Spirit, ready to spend their last days, however long the days God gives them, to do what he's called them to do as a church on mission? This is what we have to examine. What, what type of church are we? What's, what's our orthodoxy? What's our, what's our belief and what's our practice? So there's something that's called dead orthodoxy. It's when the biblical faith is affirmed with our words and thoughts, but the heart remains stagnant and unchanged. You can, Studio, you can put that on the, the screen for me. The doctrine is biblical, but the spiritual life of the church of the believer is dead. This is some of us today. That true biblical faith is affirmed in our thoughts, but our hearts remain stagnant and unchanged. And this isn't, this is a grace message this morning. It, it might make it easier if the piano came up. But come on, can't we talk about this? Some of you here right now that you know the Bible is true, but you're not aligning your private and personal life up that affirms the Bible is true. This is how you make Pharisees. You know it's right, but the control panel of your life is controlled not by God, but by sin, self, and the devil. So if that's you, 
God doesn't call you out in front of the crowd. We won't take a moment here and have you stand up. But if he's speaking to your heart, all you, you have to do is be open to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Say, God, that's me. And there has been a, a, a lack of living out what it means to be in relationship with you. I know it's true, but I just have the hardest time of living out what's true. Hey, that's, that's a good prayer. That's a good start right there. And you can finish by saying, God, help me live out what's true. Help me be what you've called me to be as a reflection of your image and your, your character. There's something that's called cold orthodoxy. These aren't mine. I get these from, from Mark Sayers. Cold orthodoxy is this. Correct biblical faith and doctrine are held. However, church caught in cold orthodoxy works from the memory of the past move of God. There's little vitality exists in the daily spiritual life of the church. So living just from a past old experience, it's what your grandparents told you about. It's what their grandparents told you about. But you're not living from your own personal encounter with the move of God in your own life. Then there's the cultural Christianity that we're all uh, affiliated with. And this is when Christianity is inherited and affirmed as a cultural identity rather than a lived personal faith. So there's, it's just about what's going on around us and tradition and different activities. But then you move into, come on, what we got to be. What I think we are to agree, but we could, be, we could be more. And it's a vital Christianity. And this is a correct biblical faith and doctrine. It's affirmed alongside a healthy spiritual life of a significant amount of congregation. Now, I don't know what significant means. To me, 10% is not significant. Maybe 25%. That, that might be more significant. Then you move into what Sayers calls hot orthodoxy. It's a correct biblical faith and doctrine that flow out of a vibrant spiritual life. Truth and presence are ever present, a majority of the congregation, so not just a small percent, but a majority of the congregation lives a powerful, vibrant spiritual life. Come on, don't we all want to live this? How we get it is we all have to make a personal choice to allow a work of God within our hearts. Because I don't think we're going to take care of the woman in John 8 and the man in Luke 10 if we first don't have a renewal in our own hearts personally. And what happens, this is the sweet thing about renewal. When, when my heart's renewed, when my heart's renewed and there's renewal in my wife's heart and then my kids, they experience a renewal in their heart, then our whole heart, our whole family um, setting experiences renewal of the move of the Holy Spirit. We can't make it happen, but we all can position ourselves in such a way that we can be ready for it to happen when it happens. And when that happens, my goodness, people come over for tabling because they listen to Pastor Tracy's message and they sit down with us and we have food together and they're like, man, just something is different with you in your conversation. I just feel something. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I just feel good around you. And next thing you know, their heart begins to unravel with all these tentacles that sin has kind of wrapped them up in. And in that moment, presence, they experience the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus right there. Why? Because we are image bearers of who the creator is. And then that breaks out in homes all across this corporate congregation. And then when this congregation experiences a corporate renewal, what happens? It breaks out in a geographical sense to where the Treasure Valley experiences it. It goes beyond there. And man, I'm sounding like Pastor Ken on, on this one, at least first service, because I have like 20 pages of notes 
and I'm reading some revivalists of old, and I've been doing it because it does something within my heart. Jonathan Edwards, he experienced this in the 1800s. He witnessed primarily among young adults of Northampton, Massachusetts, who lived during a cultural, economic, and social shift from a communal to a capitalist society. This meant that young people, unable to afford homes and farms, were delaying marriage, resulting in a generation gap in growth and sexual promiscuity. Northampton gained a reputation as a party town. The strong community bonds forged by belonging and merging were frayed. The mental and spiritual health of the young adults were deteriorated. Melancholy and depression were normative. The young adults were labeled as the lost generation. Those who came of age in a time of change and uncertainty. Just consider where we're at right now. We're in a moment of change and uncertainty. Yet Edwards... I love this. Patient ministry would result in a sovereign act of God. The young adults of Northampton would be vanguard of a new move of God, which would soon move across generational, economic, traditional, and ethnic lines. What had once seemed a valley of dry bones now flourished with spiritual life. This seemingly flowed, uh, excuse me, this seemingly Fallow ground would act as one of the vital springs in the transatlantic growth of faith known as the Great Awakening. We learn from Edward's experience that renewal occurs when people get to the end of themselves, when social bonds that have kept us strong begin to break, when stories we've told ourselves to explain the world no longer make sense. So if we want some ingredients for a renewal within our own heart and our own culture, um, there's, there's a long list of them, but just two that I'm going to give us today is renewal can happen, how we can prepare for it. It's sometimes even prepared for us. When you see that things all around us, both in culture and even in our own lives, they end up coming to the end of themselves. And they no longer are a strength, and they're no longer the leading voice. And you find yourself in a spot where, man, there's got to be more. God, we desperately need you to do more. We need a breakthrough in our own lives personally, but we need a breakthrough to see the move of God across this entire, this entire world. Um, there's something that happens when a person positions their heart in a place of desperation, when we come to the, even the end of our, our, our weakness and we realize that uh, we're, we're tapped and we, we can't do this by ourselves, it forces you to lean in, as, this, as the psalmist says, casting all your cares, all your weight on the God who cares for you. And when you do that, it's just, you, you ready yourself for something. Problem is, we are uh, opposed by this radical individualistic spirit that says separate from community, uh, deconstruct everything, um, tear down anything that has been a safety net and a support system and find your own way. The reality of that is it ends in further bondage than they could ever imagine. The closest and the most free you can be is when you lean all your weight into King Jesus. Because you have to consider this. What's the gospel? The gospel is this, that Jesus is king which means that he has a real kingdom that oversees this kingdom. I thought I was living the gospel most of my life. I've realized until, as, as, of, as of late, it hasn't been my whole life I've been living the gospel. Because I thought the gospel was about loving your neighbor, that's part of it. I thought the gospel was, 
about being kind to strangers, and that's part of it. I thought the gospel was about how much God loves me, and absolutely that's involved. But the, the short sentence for the gospel is this, Jesus is king. So then I had to say, okay, okay. So how have I positioned my life to where Jesus is king? I love it. We're doing, we're in, a, Michael and Natalie and others, are, we're in this uh, marriage class at the nine o'clock. I've heard it's been going awesome. There's a lot of people that signed up. But let, let me give you just marriage 101 in four seconds. Jesus is king. Those of you that are struggling raising your kids and you're just, you don't know what to do and where to point them. Two seconds. Jesus is king. Meaning this, that when we prioritize, this is how we get ready for our own, and the worship team can come up, please. This is how we get ready for a, a God to do renewal in our own hearts. Because that's what I think it is. Taking care of the poor is not about like, hey, let's just be, give more advertisement to it. Let's just kind of keep it in the people's face more so that they're, they're thinking about it. No, I think you'll think about it when Jesus is king. And when you're motivated by his love that he has displayed on the cross towards us as the incarnate son who ended up being the perfect image of God because he displays both logos and sarks together, word and flesh come together and form the perfect vision, the picture of who God is as, uh, as he's come and he robed himself in, in flesh. And he calls us to live on the same mission. And with that, I'm almost done. So what do we then, what do we do about it going even into, into this week? Well, even before we go into this week, the worship team is going to play, they're going to sing a song. They're going to sing, Pastor Ken, we're, we are in the same vein. Um, we ended on one song different that was at the nine o'clock. We're going to go back to what we did at Transition, the third song. And there, there's a part in there where it gives you room to pray and cry out to God. You don't have to wail, but cry in the way that you want to cry out to God. Cry out to God and say, God, because here, he knows your heart, you know your heart. And just say, God, do something brand new in me. Come on, can we commit to that? Yeah. Could, you, could you be bold enough to even make that your prayer? Knowing this, that God's not going to embarrass you. I, I felt that there, there's someone here that the reason why everything is breaking down in your life is because it's God's grace. Well, how's it God's grace? He's, he's allowing breakdown in your life to happen so that you can finally come to a point where you say, God, I need you. I've been trying to do it by myself. And the further and the longer you distance yourself, which you can't, Psalms 139, but you can try. And what you're going to find is you're not going to find any more peace. You're not going to discover any more freedom on your own effort and your own terms. It's only when you come to the feet of Jesus and you confess your sin, which is repentance. You say, God, change the way that I'm thinking. I want what you desire to be my deepest desires. I want your purposes to be what fill my thought and give me energy in the morning and throughout the day and the evening. I, I want your mission for people to be my heart for people. I want my life to be used in a way that's not wasteful, but it's for the purpose of your kingdom. It's the conversion package. It's putting your faith in Christ and making the decision on your own as a, as a grown man and a grown woman to say, God, it's for me in my life. I'm choosing to, to love you. 
I know it starts here. Do something in the control center, the control center, the very panel of my, my heart and my life. If there's hardness in there, if there's been hurt in there, uh, ask God to, to heal and to mend. And I know that. I know. And I, I felt this even at our, our earlier services. Um, I, I love how the Holy Spirit responds in, in different ways. One way that he'll respond to some is he's, he's gentle and he's soft in his speaking. And he's going to speak to the layers of hurt and pain in your heart. To others, it's more direct. It's more right in your face, but it's done with love and compassion and grace. It's never absent of that. And it's a call right now to change your life by surrendering your life to Jesus. I wonder if you could stand with me, church. I'm going to pray that as I pray, we're going to go into this song. And just as we close, as Pastor King comes up, make, come on, this a cry of your heart today. And picture, come on, picture a church, capital church, all the people that call this their community. Picture this being a church that not just a few engage in the purposes of God. And the reason why you're here today is because I do believe, I do believe your desire, like mine, is to want God and pursue God more. So let's make that a commitment that's on the dashboard of our life. We're, we're looking at it. We're, we're pursuing it. We're, we're stopping and praying for each other. We're talking to each other. Do you know what happened to me last week? Last week, someone texted me, and they said, hey, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? I almost dropped my phone. They wanted nothing else. They text me, how are you doing? How can I pray for you? I can count this year alone probably two to three times that maybe have happened. And the other two to three times they wanted something. I had a truck. The power of looking in and after other people, both in the church and the strangers outside the church, have more power than we can imagine. The church healthy and together and alive and functioning and faithful and loving and not being quick to uncover the sin of their neighbor, but going to work and showing compassion and grace and saying, hey, I'm in front of you. I represent Jesus. This is what Jesus is like. He says that you don't have to live this way. I know you screwed up. That's horrible. There's probably, yeah, there are some ramifications that come with it, but you're not the soul of your ramifications. That doesn't define the whole of you. Yes, sin does have effect. It does have consequence, but greater the story is this, that underneath all of this is a painting that God painted your life for you. You have purpose. You matter. He cares for you, and your life is set here for a particular mission. So, Father, today, every heart that's been solid. It's been stone cold. It's been locked up. It's been chained up. It's been padlocked. I'm asking today by the power of your spirit, you, you would go to that individual, both present and online, Lord, wherever at in this, in this scenario of life, and you would unlock those things that have restrained that individual from encountering your grace, your love, your truth, your mercy, your freedom. You're the God who reconciles. You're the God who restores. You give new birth. You give new life. You give new hope. You say, well done, faithful servant. 
Continue on in the ministry that I have set for you. The road is bleak. The road is difficult time, but the grace and the presence of God is with you. God, today I'm praying you would unlock, not tomorrow, not the next day, but even if it is said in corporate prayer, that now you would unlock, there would be a, a transformation of heart today, right now, in this second, amongst people that are in this house, in Jesus' name. Lord, you set those who've been wrapped up in sin. You set those that know the truth but aren't walking the truth. You would set them free today. Lord, you would replace a heart of stone, a heart that's just been littered with the trash of the enemy. You would come and do a cleansing work by your spirit in Jesus' name. If you could, put your hand on your heart. Every hand on every heart. God, we're praying as a church. Lord, do something new. Do something new in capital. Oh, let the renewal of your spirit, let it affect every man, woman, and child. Lord, as we bring neighbors, as we bring strangers to this community, Lord, let the presence of who you are impact them in great ways that they'll never be the same. God, we need a move of God. And today I'm praying as the church together, Lord, we pray, God, come do, do what you want to do. Lord, use Capital Church in a way, Lord, that brings healing and hope and rescue to a world that's lost, broken, and in desperate need. God, we need you. We need you. We need you. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.